Good morning. My name is Kevin. I'm not the regular pastor here at the Nelson Covenant. Jeff, the good-looking guy who was up earlier, is our pastor. And as Jeff mentioned, he was gone all week, and so he asked me to prepare the message for this morning. And I will be speaking on Mark 8, verses 22 to 26. I'm just going to get my little clicker here. So over the past several months, Jeff has been preaching through the book of Mark, which is one of the books in the Bible that tells a story of Jesus' ministry here on earth. We're now almost halfway through Mark, and up until this point, um, Jesus has been teaching his followers about the kingdom. He has shown that the kingdom of God has broken into the earth in a new way and is now available for everyone right here and right now. He showed them what the kingdom looks like through his teaching, through his miracles, through his healings, through his parables. But around now, in chapter 7 or 8 of Mark, we see that Jesus' message is starting to shift a little. Jesus starts transitioning from teaching about the kingdom to teaching about the king. Jesus is starting to introduce people to the idea that he is the Messiah. And this is a really big shift, and it's a dangerous one, because Jesus is is entering into an area where people have some misconceptions. You see, claiming to be the Messiah will get a lot of people really excited. There were many Jews who were waiting and praying for the Messiah, but most of them expected the Messiah to be a military leader. They were waiting for the Messiah to lead them in a revolt and insurrection against the Romans and to reestablish an independent Jewish state. They were hoping that the Messiah would be a powerful general, kind of like an Alexander the Great, just Jewish. Now, of course, that wasn't the kind of Messiah that Jesus was, and that wasn't the kind of insurrection he was leading, but he had to be really careful how he presented his message. If the crowds decided he was the Messiah, word would travel quickly. There would be zealots that would start agitating for rebellion, and pretty soon Herod or the Romans would catch wind that there was a troublemaker up in Galilee. They would move quickly to arrest him. Now Jesus knew the day was coming when he would be arrested, but he had a very clear view of the timing of his earthly mission. He still had more to do, and he didn't want events driving to that conclusion too quickly. He needed to convey his message in a way that would persuade his closest followers so thoroughly that one day they would be willing to give their lives, but at the same time keep the masses of his followers uncertain for a little while longer. This wasn't always easy. You might recall a few weeks back that Jeff taught on a passage in Mark 7 where Jesus healed a deaf and a mute man. In that passage, Jeff pointed out a prophecy In Isaiah 35, that's worth looking at again. Be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you, and when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The Jews of Jesus' time were very familiar with this passage. It was one of several similar passages that were widely understood as messianic prophecies. Healing the deaf, and especially healing the blind, was seen as powerful evidence of the Messiah. There are no stories in the Old Testament of a blind person receiving their sight. This was seen as an extremely difficult miracle. 
In fact, there's even evidence that some teachers around Jesus' time were teaching their followers that healing the blind was even more difficult than raising someone from the dead. It was something that only God or his Messiah could do. So that was the cultural context on that day when Jesus and his disciples walk into Bethsaida and Jesus is presented with a blind man who needs healing. Jesus has compassion on him. He wants to heal him, but he knows that healing a blind man will set off all kinds of alarm bells among the people. They're going to start thinking, hey, this is the Messiah. It's a message he wants to send to his closest followers, but not yet to everyone else. Let's look at the passage to to see what what happens. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. You've all heard the expression that actions speak louder than words. To the Jews, the act of healing a blind man was a booming megaphone saying, I am the Messiah. If he did this in front of the clouds, in front of the crowds, word would have spread quickly. But it was not yet time for the people to know. That's why Jesus kept things quiet. He heals the man outside the village and tells the man to go straight home. The day would come when Jesus would be more open about who he was and when he would heal blind people more publicly, but not yet. Now, from the blind man's perspective, I don't think he really cared one way or another who was watching. All he cared about was that he was healed. He was blind before, now he could see. I suspect the whole event was so exciting, so adrenaline-inducing, that after the fact, I wonder if he even remembered that Jesus touched him twice. But Jesus did touch him twice, and that seems a little bit curious, doesn't it? According to Mark, Jesus didn't heal him on the first go-around. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus tries to heal someone, and it didn't work the first time. Or at least that's how it appears. It's almost like Jesus said, be healed. Did it work? Nope, not yet. Okay, be healed. Seems a little bit, seems a little bit odd, is it? Is that what's happening? It doesn't seem right. But if that's not what's going on here, what is? Well, to help answer that question, I want you to use your imagination. Imagine that the year is 40 AD. It's about 10 or 12 years after this healing and about eight or 10 years after Jesus has died and and have been resurrected and ascended into heaven. You're in a small room in Jerusalem and you're listening in on a conversation with a few of the disciples. Let's say Peter and John and Thaddeus. He doesn't get mentioned much. They're discussing the healing we just heard about of the blind man outside Bethsaida. What do you think they're talking about? What do you think they're saying about this healing? Are they saying, yeah, Jesus was an amazing healer, but there was that time he didn't get it quite right? 
Do you think that's what they're saying? I mean, that's like saying Jesus was a great golfer. He got a hole-in-one every time, but there was that time at the country club in, in Capernaum where he sliced it off into the rough and had to chip it in for a two. But other than that, he was perfect. It's kind of a, an absurd, absurd analogy, isn't it? But it's no more absurd than thinking that the disciples would look back on this event as something that didn't go right. After seeing all that they had seen, Jesus' entire earthly ministry, his miracles, his death at the hands of the Romans, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, they knew who he was. Savior, King, Messiah, Almighty God. They would not have been discussing what went wrong, but rather our great and glorious Savior chose to touch this man twice. He chose to heal him in two stages to teach us. Wasn't he brilliant? Yes, Jesus was brilliant. And no, this wasn't something that went wrong. But why did he do it this way? What was Jesus teaching them? What lesson was being taught through the healing of this blind man in two stages? Well, to answer that question, we need to talk a little about parables. As you may know, Jesus often used parables in his teaching. And a parable is a story that's made up to illustrate a point or to get a message across. And parables can be very effective in conveying truth to those who are keen because they speak to the heart. At the same time, for enemies or those who are eager soldiers, it's hard to get too worked up over a story. Now, Jesus wasn't the first one to use parables. The Jews were familiar with parables from the Old Testament, um, where they were used in a number of places. Perhaps the most memorable is the parable of the poor man's lamb, where the prophet Nathan uh, used the parable to convict King David of his guilt uh, in adultery and uh, murder. Now, at this point, you're saying, hold it, hold it, Kevin, hold it. This can't have been a parable. This isn't just a story. Mark narrates this as an actual historic event. And in that, you'd be completely correct. Mark's account certainly is intended to be meant as historical. And so this isn't a parable in the sense that we're used to. But there's another type of parable in the Old Testament that the Jews would have been familiar with. Let's call these visual parables. Instead of telling a story to get a point across, a visual parable is more like a skit that conveys a message. Usually it was prophets who used visual parables, who performed these skits. Guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, guys who tried every trick in the book to get people to listen to what God's, God was saying, and often without much success. For example, there was a guy named Ezekiel who was a prophet around the time that Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians, he was desperately trying to, the, trying to tell the people that yes, you would be sent into exile and yes, it's going to be really hard. And this is go how God told him to do it. I'm going to be reading from Ezekiel chapter 4. And now, son of man, take a large clay brick and set it down in front of you. Then draw a map of the city of Jerusalem on it. Show the city under siege. Build a wall around it so no one can escape. Set up the enemy camp and surround the city with siege ramps and battering rams. 
Then take an iron griddle and place it between you and the city. Turn toward the city and demonstrate how harsh the siege will be against Jerusalem. This will be a warning to the people of Israel. Now lie on your left side and place the sins of Israel on yourself. You are to bear their sins for the number of days you lie there on your side. I am requiring you to bear Israel's sins for 390 days, one day for each year of their sin. After that, turn over and lie on your right side for 40 days, one day for each year of Judah's sin. What God has asked Ezekiel to do is to use a skit to convey a message, a visual parable. And I believe this is the same communication technique that Jesus is using to teach his disciples. Jesus healed the blind man's blindness a little at a time with improved clarity coming at each touch. And Jesus is teaching the disciples, I will heal your spiritual blindness when you rely on me, but not all at once. Okay? I will heal your spiritual blindness when you rely on me, but not all at once. You see, the disciples are having a really tough time catching on. They've been walking with Jesus for months, maybe years, living with him, watching him say and do incredible things. They've seen him feed thousands of people, walk on the water, cast out demons, and heal the sick. And by now, they're probably thinking that they have Jesus figured out. But as Jeff taught us a few weeks ago, they really don't. They're not even close. Let's go back just two verses in Mark and read again what Jesus said to them. He said, why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything? Doesn't Jesus sound exasperated with these guys? They think they get it, but they don't yet see clearly. And that's why Jesus heals the blind man in a very unique way. Let's read the healing verses again. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, did it take one touch from Jesus to heal his blindness or two? Consider this. The man was blind, and after Jesus touched him the first time, he could see people. He couldn't see them clearly, but he could see them. The first touch changed who he was. He was no longer the blind man. (coughs) Consider this. Many of you here wear glasses or contacts. Some of you have quite strong prescriptions. And without your correction, your corrective lenses, the world more than a few feet away looks pretty blurry. The image the man describes of people looking like trees walking around doesn't sound so crazy, does it? If you're someone with poor eyes, perhaps you can relate. But you're not blind, are you? And in Jesus' time, without glasses or contacts, you would have some challenges, but you could probably figure out a way to live with your poor eyesight. You likely wouldn't be a professional knife thrower at the Capernaum Cirque du Soleil, but there were many jobs that would be possible. 
you could probably make it work just like the thousands of other people at that time who had poor eyes and didn't have glasses but who needed to get on with life. <coughs> now this is just my speculation but I, th- I believe that the man thought he was fully healed on the first go. When Jesus asked him, do you see anything? How did he respond? Did he say, well, I see people. They look like trees. Or did he say, I see people. They look like trees walking around. It's, it's hard to know for sure what he was thinking. But either way, the man's life has been completely changed. The blind man, who would have been good for pretty much nothing, could now see well enough to function. He could look forward to an entirely new life. He was a new man. But even if he was content with his eyesight, Jesus was not. We already know what Jesus wanted to do. He wanted to touch him again so he could see even more clearly. The Bible doesn't tell us what the man said after he was fully healed, but you can imagine him being pretty enthusiastic, right? First, Jesus touches him, heals him of his blindness. Then he touches him and heals him of his nearsightedness. I can imagine him running up to Jesus and hanging on saying, touch me again, Jesus, I want to see more. I I, I don't know, maybe that's not what he did. But that's what Jesus wants us to do. That's what Jesus was teaching the disciples through this visual parable. Go to him, ask him for healing, let him touch us again and again so that we can see more and more clearly. Like the disciples, we don't see clearly either. I don't see clearly. You don't see clearly. 1 Corinthians 13 puts it this way. We see through a mirror dimly. And though we may be spiritually spiritually blind to many things, the most important thing we need is a clear view of who Jesus is. I'm going to say that again. The most important thing we need is a clear view of who Jesus is. In the verses just prior to this, Jesus had said to his disciples, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? The disciples were worried about where their next meal was coming from because they didn't recognize that Jesus could meet all their needs because They were blind to who he is. And immediately after this healing, in the next few verses in Mark, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is the question that underpins all the others. Do you know who Jesus is? This is the question that separates Jesus from every other teacher and prophet and spiritual guide that ever lived. All of them pointed to God or pointed to a path to God or a path to enlightenment or a path to nirvana. Jesus didn't say, I can show you the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the light of the world. I am the truth. And his question to his disciples and his question to us is, who do you say that I am? If you're blind to who he is, you will be spiritually blind to all kinds of things. How clearly do you see him? Perhaps you're like the blind man after Jesus touched him the first time. You're no longer blind. You see well enough to know that he is our Savior and Lord. 
and that's great. But every time you sin, every time you're anxious, every time you fear pain, you show that your view of him still is somewhat unclear. You're not clearly seeing how powerful he is, how loving and gracious and brilliant. The good news is that Jesus wants to touch us. He wants, to, he wants us to come to him again and again and say, I'm not getting this right. Can you help me see more clearly? He wants us to say, I, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And when we do that, he will heal our spiritual eyesight a little more each time. The healing doesn't all come at once and it's never good enough on this side of heaven, but we aren't expected to be satisfied either. In fact, it's a good thing to be dissatisfied with your level of spiritual sight. Go to Jesus. Ask him to heal you some more, to give you clearer eyes. Keep going. Keep asking. Keep praying. Keep digging in the word. Be a pest. Jesus says he honors our persistence. He's promised that everyone who asks receives. As you draw near to him, you will start seeing him more and more clearly. On the other hand, if, you're a, if you've been a Christian for many years and you're content with where you're at, that's troubling. If you're in that place, and, and I think many of us, myself included, have been at one point or another, if you're in that place, I would encourage you to confess your apathy before God. Draw near to him again. Ask him to open your eyes and to heal the blindness that, that may have increased without you realizing it. The disciples had a long ways to go before they saw clearly, but Jesus was touching them, was healing them, and clearing up their sight a little bit at a time. When he first called them, they may have followed him because they saw that he was a great teacher. And after living with him and learning from him, they probably saw that he was a great prophet. And then they began to see that he was a healer. And then they began to see that he was the Messiah. And then they saw that he was their friend and their king and their savior and their redeemer. And then they saw that he was their God. The more time they spent with him, the more he touched them, the clearer their vision became. If we return back to that little room in Jerusalem where Peter and John and Thaddeus were chatting, I think each of them would say, that they saw more clearly than they could have ever possibly imagined. And I also think they would have longed for more. They would have been praying for continued touches from the master, praying for still better sight so that they could see more perfectly and more clearly. And that's what we can do too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know how poorly we see. Please continue to touch us, continue to heal our spiritual eyes so that we can see you more clearly and know you more. Thank you that even though we see things dimly now, one day you will make our sight perfect and we, we will see you face to face. Amen.
May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.